2: I'm Ida Vok, your correspondent in Berlin.
3: I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. And I'm Alex Kruger, Managing Editor International in London. It's Thursday, the 21st of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
2: This week, we're looking at how Georgia became a hub for the Russian opposition in exile.
4: I attended a few anti war protests in Tbilisi. I had like flashbacks because, and I, I talked about this with some of my Russian friends who attended too, because we, be, we would be at the protests and we would see the police and immediately I was like, okay, like looking for a place where I, I can run.
5: Then we turned to the issue of Russian money in London and the allegations around Boris Johnson and his links to a Russian father and son. Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev.
2: I don't think there's been enough due diligence at all over Russians in London um, for many, many years.
5: We also take listener question on what happens if Russia cuts off gas supplies to Germany. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin.
3: Okay. Regular listeners may have noticed that Emily Tampkin is missing. Um, Just to reassure you, she is safe and well and enjoying a well-earned vacation. Emily, we will try not to break anything while you're away. We're starting today in Georgia, which has become an important hub for the Russian opposition in exile. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled their country over the last four months since the start of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine in February. He has cracked down on any possible sources of domestic opposition to his rule, passing new laws that make it a criminal offence even to call the war a war, on penalty of up to 15 years in jail. Russia's most prominent opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, is now in a maximum security prison, and the last independent media outlets in Russia have been forced to close or to move their operations abroad. Ido, you've been reporting from Belisi, a hard job, but somebody has to do it. And you have a great piece that we'll put in the show notes. Um, so let's start with what you found about how many people are now heading for Georgia and what's behind those decisions.
2: So hundreds of thousands of Russians uh, are estimated to have left Russia since Vladimir Putin launched his war in Ukraine. They fled to Many different countries, mostly sort of countries around Russia, which used to be part of the Soviet Union. Many have gone to the Baltics. Some have gone to Central Asia. But really the main destinations have ended up being Georgia and Armenia, so in the South Caucasus. And for a few reasons, the main one is just geographical proximity and the fact that Russian citizens don't require a visa for these countries, which is not the case in most countries in the world or in Europe at the moment. And they fled for a variety of reasons. Most obviously, sort of political. There's been a crackdown on dissent within Russia, as you as you mentioned. You know, saying that you're not Russians aren't allowed to call the war in Ukraine a war. They're not allowed to protest. Uh, opposition politicians have been jailed or intimidated or very strongly invited to to emigrate but there were also other reasons so there are very strong western sanctions on russia depending on how you count russia might be the most sanctioned country in the world ahead of iran and that has had a significant effect on living standards and some people have left for a combination of reasons maybe they've left because They don't want to live in Vladimir Putin's authoritarian or near-totalitarian Russia, but also they fear the effect of the sanctions on their living standards.
3: Can you give us some examples of some of the individuals that you've been speaking to and what kind of activities they're now trying to pursue in this form of exile, particularly in terms of the, the opposition movement?
2: So many people who've gone to Georgia have done so for political reasons. So, for example, I spoke to someone called Maria. She lived in Moscow and then fled a week into the invasion to Georgia. And she fled because she she told me she didn't want to live in what she called a fascist country. I saw her arguing with people, talking about her. Her despair, her uh, her fear at what was going to happen in Russia, and she just felt that she couldn't stay anymore. And she was quite used to opposition activism in Russia, so she told me that she used to be quite a regular attendant mm. at opposition protests in Moscow, for example. And um, she spoke about this culture shock that happened when she arrived. In Tbilisi, which is a flawed democracy, certainly, but certainly much more democratic than than Russia, where she would attend anti-war protests. She told me about what it was like to attend protests in a relatively free country coming from a country with a political system which strongly represses dissent.
4: And so when well, I attended a few anti-war protests in Louisville, and it was, it was really like, I, I had like flashbacks because, and I, I talked about this with some of my Russian friends who attended too, because we would be, we would be at the protests and we would see the police and immediately I was like, okay, like looking for a place where I, I can run, like looking around for police, uh, for police officers, seeing yeah, where I, I, I am. Yeah, like I had this instinct. I was like looking around all the time, looking for them, like, uh, like you always have to plan an escape route, uh, make sure that you can't be surrounded. And I couldn't get rid of these thoughts. So I was at a completely like, safe protest where the police were protecting us. I still couldn't get rid of this feeling. It was, like, it was really funny. Well, it's not funny. It's pretty sad. But like, all of my Russian friends here who attended protests in Moscow, they had the exact same thing.
3: And you've also written about some of the threats, the kind of intimidation that some of these people are, are now facing.
2: So Georgia's in quite a sort of difficult situation. So its economy depends very, very strongly on tourism. And most of the tourism in Georgia comes from Russia or that part of the world. And a lot of it came from Ukraine. Obviously, this year, the tourism season has been a bit disrupted. So that's one of the main reasons that Georgia doesn't have a visa regime with Russia. But at the same time, the government appears quite uneasy with... Georgia's emergence as a centre for opposition activism because now you have tens of thousands of people who've arrived in Georgia opposition bloggers, opposition politicians, activists, feminist activists, you know, members of Pussy Riot, like people like that, that basically have felt that they that they forced to leave. And so Georgia over the past few months has become a kind of centre for the opposition. But that makes the government very nervous because Georgia fought a war with Russia in 2008. The government is nervous about antagonising Russia too much. And a few people put to me that if Georgia were to emerge as the kind of the center of the opposition for Russia, given that Georgia isn't in NATO or anything, that could potentially end up quite dangerous for Georgia. And with Russia acting the way it does, um, it's very unpredictable, and, and the government is quite wary of that. And so, what you've seen is although most people get in without any problems, if people try and get in with too high a public profile, they sometimes find that they that they're refused entry, and that's the case, for example, of uh, Dave Frenkel, who's a journalist for the outlet Mijazorno, who told me that he was denied entry when he tried to get to Georgia via road from Russia. So we waited for fourteen hours on the
4: border, and uh, after that, uh, the decision came. the decision was to deny entry they gave me a document saying that i was denied entry and there was a list of like options to deny and i had a check uh, next to other reasons Mm. so so they had no explanation and the document they gave me had no explanation the only reason we can uh, imagine why i was stopped is that may probably Russian authorities gave some kind of a list of journalists and political activists who shouldn't be, I don't know, allowed to Georgia.
3: I have one final question for you, Ido, which may be difficult to say, but I, I wonder how sustainable this is in terms of just the, the day-to-day difficulties that so many Russian citizens abroad are facing in terms of access to banking, ability to, to get jobs. Did you hear from people who are now thinking about returning to Russia? Or does this seem to be a long-term trend and a permanent decision to live outside of Russia?
2: So most people I spoke to, they didn't see themselves in Georgia long-term. I mean, I kept speaking to people, Maria, who you heard from earlier, she said... She really wanted to return, and she couldn't see herself living anywhere else. There's, there, I spoke to a co-founder of an NGO called Emigration for Action, which helps fundraise for Ukrainian refugees. He also told me he didn't ever want to, you know, live anywhere else. But the question isn't really what they want; it's what is possible for them and what they view as safe. And clearly any kind of dissent from the government now in Russia is almost is almost impossible. And if these people have felt that things are so bad in Russia that they have to leave, that they have to leave their jobs, their friends, their family, the people they know, the cities that they know, and go to, I mean, a country that is somewhat culturally and linguistically and geographically proximate to Russia, but nonetheless, you know, a foreign country it's got to be said like russians are not always viewed very positively georgia fought a war with with russia in 2008 and um i think most people distinguish between individual russians certainly opposition-minded individual russians and russia's government or the country but nonetheless you know there there is a lot of kind of hostility from the population it's not really about what they want it's more about what they think is possible and i spoke to person after person who told me look i mean i want to go back to russia but I don't think it's going to be possible before the Putin regime falls or before very significant political change. And and there were even people who said, you know, if Putin goes, there's no saying that what comes after will be better. So I think in, in some ways this will turn into a quite long term issue. The only thing I think you could say is that not everyone necessarily wants to stay in Georgia long term. Some people have the ambition of going you know, to Europe or, or, or to America or, or, or wherever. And so Georgia, because they don't need a visa, because it's very close geographically, it can kind of serve as the first step, but not all of them necessarily want to stay there.
3: Well, Ido has a terrific piece on this that we'll put into the show notes. We will move on to the next section, although we will stay with Russia, to look at In the final days before Boris Johnson, the outgoing British Prime Minister, agreed to resign, somewhat subsumed in all of that political drama was his admission that he met the former KGB spy turned oligarch Alexander Lebedev on his own in Italy in 2018 when he was then Foreign Secretary. There have also been questions about the decision to grant his son, the newspaper owner Evgeny Lebedev, a peerage in the House of Lords, despite reports that the British Security Services raised concerns. Evgeny Lebedev has denied that he posed a security risk and says he has nothing to hide. Alex, you have been reporting on this. So let's start firstly with what we know about the relationship between Boris Johnson and Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev.
5: So we know that they have been friends for over a decade. And Boris Johnson has also been a guest at house parties organised by Alexander Lebedev in Umbria. Now, in 2019, a photo emerged of Johnson at Perugia Airport, where he was looking extremely disheveled. This was a photo from April 2018. It emerged that Johnson had gone to Perugia unaccompanied by any officials, and he'd gone after meetings in Brussels where NATO foreign ministers had been discussing what to do about Russia in the wake of the poisoning of the former spy Sergei Skripal, And his daughter, an incident that then led to the death of a British national. That was an attack on British soil. Earlier this month, Johnson admitted to a parliamentary committee that he'd met Alexander Lebedev at that party, and there were no officials present at that time.
2: I'm certainly not going to deny having met. Uh, Alexander Lebedev. I, I certainly have, I as far as I remember. Uh, he used to own uh, the London Evening Standard. Yes, but with
5: officials. When you were foreign secretary, did you meet with officials or without officials? Look,
2: I, 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 I certainly met him without officials.
5: Right.
3: Listeners may hear a little bit of building work in the background of Alex's recording. These are the, the perils of working from home. I'm sure many listeners can relate. <laughs> so bear with us and send your sympathies to Alex. Alex, you have uh, been talking to to Christopher Steele, the, the former British intelligence officer, uh, as we heard there uh, about his concerns, and we'll we'll put the link to your interview with him. In the show notes, what are his views about the broader concerns here and whether this goes beyond the Lebedevs?
5: So I think from what he said to me, it's the fact that we just don't know what was said because no one else was present. There were no officials. Maybe it was all perfectly innocuous. Maybe they were discussing the best vineyards, but there is no record. And that's extremely unusual.
2: it it raises all sorts of issues not least actually the physical security of the foreign secretary um, in a foreign country without proper bodyguards or protection Um, that's at its most basic but obviously as well conversations that may have taken place which aren't properly recorded and witnessed Um, we saw a bit of that with what president trump got up to in helsinki in 2018 and there are very serious concerns that things might have been said or information divulged and so on which was not um, authorised and the foreign secretary is not in a position himself or herself to decide what and what they shouldn't uh, divulge.
5: Now Alexander Lebedev has never hidden his past life as a spy. In a memoir he wrote that he left the KGB in 1992. Nonetheless he's been sanctioned by Canada as a close associate of Vladimir Putin and for his part Evgeny Lebedev has responded to the criticisms of his appointment to the House of Lords, describing himself as a proud British citizen, not a security risk. He's used his platform as proprietor of the London Evening Standard to oppose Russia's war in Ukraine. Are the Lebedevs an isolated case? Well, the Lebedevs are a special case because of their contact with Boris Johnson and what's emerged about that. But in a wider sense, there is growing concern about what's been called grad or Moscow on 10s. So the UK has now sanctioned more than 1,000 individuals and 120 businesses. But this is also about what we don't know about Russian money in London. There is a lot of it. So in the 1990s, the UK set up a golden visa scheme for Russian investors. It was very keen to attract overseas money, And that's been hugely beneficial to London and and the wider UK economy. But the trouble is, we just don't know the source of a lot of that money. It's registered offshore. It's untraceable. It could be fine. Maybe it's not. We just don't know. And so Christopher Steele is calling for greater vetting and possibly a foreign agent registration act just to create greater transparency. Okay, well, let us leave Alex and the
3: reconstruction happening next door to her home office there.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
5: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12.
5: That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America.
2: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
6: From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale.
2: Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are. That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display.
6: A Year Inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
2: At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious.
6: And a Maria Wilczek on
5: Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the
6: weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from The New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Selling a little or a lot? because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a
3: $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: and now save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
3: Now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You ask us. Very good. Emily, we haven't messed it up at all in your absence. Our listener wants to know what happens if Russia doesn't resume gas deliveries to Germany. So the background to this question is that the Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Russia to Germany shut down for annual maintenance on the 11th of July. It was due to reopen 10 days later, but now there are real concerns as to whether Russia will actually turn the gas back on. We heard on Monday, 18th July, that Gazprom, the main Russian gas company, had told European companies that it might be unable to fulfill its contracts due to, quote, unforeseeable circumstances. Ido, you have been reporting on this, so let's have you take this on. What do we know about how serious this threat is? And perhaps crucially, what would it actually mean? if Russia does not turn the gas back on.
2: So we're actually recording this a couple of days before the gas is scheduled to go back on. Our listeners might know whether it's gone back on or not, but we don't. Um, But what we can say is that it seems like Russia is dangling the prospect of a complete end or a complete or partial end to gas deliveries to Germany in particular and Europe generally um, ahead of the winter because... Officially, there's a dispute over um, Siemens, which is a German company failing to return a turbine it was having repaired in Canada. There are a whole bunch of legal questions around whether the turbine is sanctioned and Canada issued a sanctions exemption and so on. But that's the official pretext. The real issue here is whether Russia is going to restart deliveries to Germany after this period of of maintenance and that really has germany has germany squirming at the moment because germany as we've spoken about before on this podcast uh, relies very strongly on russian gas and it's it's crucial to to the economy and to germany's energy mix and if the taps go off that means a really 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 difficult winter almost certainly it, mean, it would mean a recession probably a bigger recession than in 2020 when the economy contracted about five percent because of the coronavirus pandemic it would mean energy energy shortages industry being told to shut down and possibly rationing for for households i mean it it could it could get get really bad obviously nowhere near as bad as a situation in ukraine but really russia does have the ability to, to turn the screws here and i think the main point here is russia is really looking to test how far the West's support for Ukraine extends. The greatest weakness of Western democracy, as Russia sees it, is that leaders are accountable and have to listen to their voters. And Russia is trying to increase hardship and pressure on on voters who are already facing you know, inflation, the cost of living squeeze, and is trying to compound that with the threat of energy shortages in the hope of a popular backlash against support for Ukraine um, and kind of pressuring European leaders to demand of Ukraine that it settles somehow, which means avoiding an economic crisis and energy shortages and so on.
3: We've talked previously about how there has been no real... Price to pay so far for supporting Ukraine? You know, we, we've talked about how, you know, how easy it is to put the Ukraine flag emoji in your social media profiles. You know, it, it's politically advantageous for many political leaders to be publicly and, and volubly supporting Ukraine up until now. But is there a danger? Do you think that Putin is right here that once there is a sense of, you know, real economic? pain and potentially real individual difficulties with with energy shortages this winter, that he's right that that will erode Western resolve to, to support Ukraine.
2: I think I think he is right. You could already see this uh, a few weeks ago when a think tank published polling which classified European voters into two camps. They called them the peace camp and the justice camp. And the peace camp just wanted peace even if it me- even if it means Ukraine uh, making certain concessions and the justice camp wanted Ukraine to win. And the peace camp was larger than the justice camp in most European countries I think apart from Poland. And that was in the quote-unquote uh, good days when, you know, we weren't talking about energy shortages and that that didn't look like a, like a possibility. And I think clearly, if there really are energy shortages and the recession, there will be a real backlash against support to Ukraine. I think that's pretty inevitable. And it will be up to leaders to level with their electorates and to say that this is the price to pay for years of complacency towards towards Ukraine. Germany increased its reliance on, on Russian gas after the annexation of Crimea, it didn't decrease it. And leaders in Germany and elsewhere will need to be honest with their electorates about this winter being the consequence of the decisions that have been taken over the past decade or so.
3: Just going to ask briefly, Alex, how, how this is being viewed from, from London. I, I know the UK is in the grip of the Conservative leadership contest, but you know, how, how closely are, are people there watching what's, what's happening with this situation?
5: I think they are watching it closely. And if I can bring it back to another subject of great concern in the UK, which is the current heat wave and what you said about people putting Ukraine emojis in their social media profiles, you know, it's a bit like councils and governments declaring a climate emergency. And then when they actually have to take action, it's much, much more difficult. So, yes, you do have that that base of support, but it causes real pain when you have to act on these things. And so the calculus, I think, is that does it cause more pain to act now or later? If it's postponed, if there is a settlement in Ukraine, would that mean that Putin just launched another war a few years down the track. And there are certainly people who say that. So which, which should take priority? And is it worth paying that pain in lost gains for the economy in return for a long, longer term security? It's a really difficult decision. I don't envy those who have to make it. Well,
3: Ido, once again, has a great piece on this, which we will also add to the add to the show notes. And Ido, if you would bring us kindly to the end of our
5: recording, please.
2: Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatement.co.uk or by tweeting at us.
5: That's all we have time for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode. I have one
3: apology to make. Ido has messaged me to tell me that I unforgivably use the word vacation instead of holiday and that I will not be allowed back into to the UK so I can only humbly apologize I will hand my british passport back to the british embassy here in washington dc and you know i can only ask for your understanding at this difficult time If you are a regular World Review listener, we have a favour to ask, which you have heard before, and I'll be honest with you, you will probably hear again. Uh, We only ask because it really does make a big difference. Please, 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 would you rate us? Five stars. And if you are feeling especially generous, please, would you also leave us a nice review? It really does help. And if you have already done this, thank you. Our producer has been Mae Robson, with assistance from Bilal Ali. Thank you for listening, and until next time.